0: Mark Arax co-authored The King of California, a critically acclaimed study of the J.G. Boswell Agricultural Empire. Arax also authored In My Father's Name, an investigation into the unsolved murder 20 years earlier of his own father. His new book is West of West. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Thank you for having me. This is a really powerful vision of the American West. And I was talking with somebody earlier today about... Jim Houston's book Continental Drift and he yeah. starts that book off with a overview of of America and, and what what he points out is that the San Andreas Fault is where these two giant continental plates uh, hit and, and it made me think that you know your book is really about that part that's just west of, not just California but west of the the uh, North American
1: continental plate it's a different country, different part of the world. It is a different part of the world. I mean, the, the title comes from a Teddy Roosevelt line. He said, when I'm in California, I'm not in the West, I'm West of the West. And I think he was not only talking about being at continent's edge and end, but I think he was also talking about a kind of psychological state that inhabits that edge, that end. And that's what I was kind of interested in looking at. I mean, the last thing I wanted to do was what a lot of East Coast writers do. They fly in and they deal in these tropes of California, you know, the stereotypes. And I resisted putting a, a, an earthquake in this piece, uh, uh, in the book, a wildfire. There are no mudslides. I had a chance to meet Charles Manson once in the prote- protective housing unit at Corcoran State Prison. It was a bizarre meeting. I'll never forget. I, you know, you look at the, his, the top of him, and there was that swastika between his eyes, and you. Looked down at the bottom, and he was wearing Birkenstocks, which I thought was just a a crazy, crazy kind of contradiction there. But, um, you know, he doesn't make a cameo in this book. So, really, my my premise was pretty simple. Each landscape of California, by virtue of its, um, you know, distinct geography, psychology, and its history kind of produces its own drama. So I went out looking for these dramas on the land in which the land was a character.
0: And the land is a really fascinating character. Now you start off in a valley that is actually home to me, San Gabriel Valley, Valley Boulevard, (laughs) driving up and down Valley Boulevard. And you talk about the changes in population that have come across the years. It's pretty astonishing because when I lived there, it wasn't like that.
1: There are a number of places I visit that have undergone these incredible transformations. Um, one is the San Gabriel Valley. When I was there as a journalist for the LA Times in the late 1980s, it went from white and Latino to the, the most concentrated Chinese populations of any cities in the country. Monterey Park had was the only city in, in the United States that had a majority Chinese population. This happened in a matter of 10 years, okay? Um, and I went back there to see what would happen since then. And um, they they are, are now in, you know, the, the Chinese now have become, I mean, it, they become part of the establishment, you know. <laughs> and and, and, it's, and it's, you know, and, and I did a book reading down there and one of the guys that I profiled came 20 years later to see me and and, and, and he was poor and he brought with him a photo of a plane that he would bought. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, Look, look what I've achieved in these 20 years. Wow. Uh, Lamont, in the middle of California, mm-hmm. it went from pure Dust Bowl. I mean, that's where Steinbeck went to tell his story, uh, Grapes of Wrath. Today you go to Lamont, there is not a, a more thoroughly Latino Mexican town in California than Lamont. That flipped in a matter of 15 years. So, so these transformations, um, you know, th- these kind of epic stories of migrants and, uh, and immigrants coming to California is something that I'm endlessly fascinated with. And, and a lot of those tales are woven into this book. Could you talk about going into these
0: migrant communities and, and getting interviews and getting yourself to... So getting the people to talk to you, it can't be easy.
1: Well, there was there's cultural gaps and language gaps. I'll give you a, a little story. I decided to go back to the field that my grandfather first worked when he came to California 85 years ago. Um, And he came from? He came from Armenia. He had survived the Armenian genocide uh, by hiding in an attic in Istanbul, Turkey for a year. He went up there with these great French symbolist writers, the poet Verlaine, the short story writer Maupassant, and when he came down, he wanted to go to the Sorbonne and become a poet. But this uncle who had survived the genocide and had landed in Fresno, 7,000 miles to the west, kept writing my grandfather. Saying you must come to this Eden of pomegranate and peach, and he described the watermelons as big as small boats and the grapes that hung like jade eggs. And my grandfather at nineteen took the bait, came west. His uncle picked him up in this gleaming model T Ford, and he was dressed, you know, impeccably. Wow. And my grandfather, I'm sure, thought, Man, I've arrived. This this is this is the land of milk and honey. The uncle let him believe that for about three, four days, and then he took him in that Model T Ford and drove him to Weed Patch. And my grandfather years later told me, I did what all poets do when they arrive in the San Joaquin Valley. I got on my hands and knees and started picking potatoes and fruit. So I go back to that vineyard, that first vineyard he worked in 85 years later, and there are footprints leading into the vineyard. And it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to think these are my grandfather's footsteps. I follow them in. And there at the end of the row is a young misteca from Oaxaca. She had been smuggled the week before in the back of a suburban. She was, paying, she was working to pay off her $1,900 debt to the coyote who had smuggled her over. And I asked her, you know, what brought you here? And she said, my two children. And I said, are they with you? She said, no, I've left them back in Mexico with my mother. I came for their future. And what, what, what I thought was is the dream of California had stayed the same in those 85 years. My grandfather had come for his future. Both those dreams had played out on the land, and yet the promise of California had changed. My grandfather, in four years working with his mother, brother, sister, pulled enough money to buy their first vineyard west of Fresno, 20 acres, Thompson Grapes. That's where my father was born. No Oaxacan family, no farm worker family today, as resourceful as they might be, as good at pinching pennies as they might be, could ever hope to buy 20 acres of land in the valley. So there it is, the dream, the same, the promise having changed.
0: You talk about uh, the um, immigrants. There's a really powerful piece, the, the Summer of the Death of Hilario Guzman. Tell us about that finding that story and writing it. must have been pretty difficult to, to hear his story.
1: It was a, a one-year journey. Um, I was working with a photographer named Matt Black um, was an incredible photographer. Um, I think one day people can look back at the work of Matt Black and say, here is another Walker Evans, Dorothea Lange. He had heard and I had heard about uh, these, these the Oaxacans coming in and, and working in the fields. And basically what it was, they were leaving the dust of Oaxaca and coming to California, not unlike the Okies. These were the brown Okies. And we had heard that, that actual Trique Indians from Oaxaca were coming. So we kept looking around and we couldn't find them. Finally, I went to a friend of mine who's a big raisin uh, uh, raisin grower in, uh, in in the valley, in a town called Fowler. And I said, "Do you have any Tz'uke Indians working for you?" And he says, "I think I do." And so he set us up with a crew boss. The next thing we know, Matt Black and I are on an old, broken-down church bus, four in the morning, with this uh, middleman picking up these workers from the barrio of Fresno and taking him to this raisin town called Fowler, uh, about 10 miles south. We met this family. Hilario Guzman had just died, okay, in an auto accident. Mm. And we started following his family and seeing how that tragedy ended up taking what was already an impoverished situation and making it worse by, by tenfold the poverty we saw in that year following this family from one raised harvest to the other was um, something I wasn't prepared for I uh, didn't know existed in the shadows of the place I lived and the piece really is an exploration it's it's, it's, it's a very intimate portrait in in, in photos and in uh, in in prose of one immigrant family through America farm worker family and i Raise a lot of very difficult questions about immigration. You know, I throw myself into a lot of these pieces. It's 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 not mm-hmm. yeah, you know I've it's not it's, it's kind of, it's not third person journalism. And what I do is I want the reader to see where I stand, and it, so they can judge. You know, it's where 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 what's the subjectivity of this writer? Mm-hmm. And 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 by doing that, sometimes I, I show them where I stand at the beginning of the piece, and then at the end I may be standing somewhere else. So they can see how, how how what I have seen has has changed my my worldview on mm-hmm. something. So it, it's it's in, it's intimate not only as a portrait of people, but I think it's intimate the voice of a writer is what I was trying to achieve.
0: It's a it's a fascinating look at at the practice of, of journalism, because as you say, most journalism is third person, it's distance, it's meant to be objective, and that that's fine as it is, but. To, see from behind the lens of the behind the pen so to speak gives us a really different view of how the work affects the people who are doing it
1: that's a great question you know i I think if journalism is going to survive we're going to have to amend this notion i call it pretend objectivity okay
0: i like that idea yeah yeah. it's
1: it's (laughs) It's, it's, I think objectivity is a false notion. First of all, it assumes that we are almost automatons. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was writing for the LA Times, when I would go out on a story, first of all, the story I picked, just the story I picked, was filtered through my kind of experiences, Okay, what I was attracted to. Sure. Then the questions I decided to ask were questions that went through my prism. And then the notes I decided to take, the things that resonated with me, were also fil- filtered, sifted through my own experiences. So right there, the process of objectivity is becoming subjective. Um, so I-, I think, to me, to me a-, a better notion, uh, a better standard is fairness. Go out and do a story. Go out, load it up with, with you don't want to be loaded up with any preconceived notions. Throw a big wide net out there. Bring it all back in. As the facts begin to accrue, a certain point of view starts happening. You take that point of view, and you don't apologize for it, and you write it from that point of view in an engaging way. To me, that's more honest than saying, you know, we're, we're, we're objective observers. Um, and, and so I'll use reportage in these stories, in West of the West. I will use uh, first-person memoir. My own family's history is never far away from these stories. And then there's also the voice of an essayist at work. So I'll throw it all, I throw it all—I throw it all in—in in, in, in an effort to try to, you know, get my hands around something.
0: Uh, well, the pieces are really fascinating and intense uh, stories. Beautiful reading. Could you talk about crafting that kind of reading experience, um, using all these different parts? It's a—it's a, a unique form that you that you've essayed here.
1: Well, I. As lofty as it sounds, and I know it sounds lofty, I, I was trying to do what I think no one has done in California except for Joan Didion and maybe a few others like that. I was actually trying to write this generation slouching towards Bethlehem. I, I, I know I fell short, but that was what I was trying to do. Um, and what, what I wanted was, um, you know, obviously to, to use novelistic kinds of techniques in, mm. in here, dialogue, everything else. Um, but, uh, but also be true to what I was seeing. So that to set the bar that high requires a tremendous amount of work, the reporting, the notebook after notebook filled, um, you know, I tape stuff too, especially when the voices are important. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, I found one day I was driving down Highway 99. I looked to the side of the road, and there was a tar paper shack that looked like it had been lifted out of the 1930s Mississippi Delta.
0: I love 99.
1: Yeah, 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 99 is something. And, and, you know, I'd driven down it so many times, but I'd never seen this tar paper shack. And I said to myself, my God, no one lives there. And I looked, and there were puffs of smoke coming out of the the, the roof. And, And I said, wow, someone does live there. So I drove across the railroad tracks, I went into a dirt field, went into a vineyard, knocked on the door once, twice, three times, and out came this incredible black man who looked like he had been lifted out of the 1930s Mississippi Delta. He had a stutter and a southern drawl, and he said his name was James Dixon, and, and basically his story was this. Instead of coming, leaving the South and going to the big northern cities, or the big western cities, he followed the cotton trail west. He wanted to go from rural south to rural west, and he found it in the San Joaquin Valley. And not only him, but a whole tribe of what I call lost Okies had done that. Okay, So I found many more of them across the way, living in these little, this little settlement on Alkali Flats of Tulare County. Their voices were so incredibly distinct, you know, wet, part West, part South, cotton, um, that I had to tape those voices. I taped them, transcribed those voices, took me hours and hours, and then wrote the stories. Some of those stories appeared in The King of California. Some of them appear in this book. Um, thank goodness when I went back to do this book, I went back to find them and they're all dead now. They're all gone. And, and, and those places they were living in, Teveston, Pixley, have gone from black to now all Latino Mexican. Um, so so thank goodness I got those voices because they're part of the American West, a lost part, and I'm going to turn them over to the library someday. So when I encounter voices like that, you cannot do justice by writing them down. Mm-hmm. You have to record them, listen back. As you're listening back, you're kind of marinating again in your reporting, and it's only then that I think you feel comfortable to start to, to attempt the narrative, to attempt the storytelling.
0: One of the things I really loved was your story about Fresno. You mentioned Fresno. This is where you were born, right?
1: Yes, I was born there.
0: Um, I love the way that you talk about the Fresno, the way it's been developed. Um, (laughs) Tell us about the the Fresno development model because it's pretty unique. (laughs) Or maybe not unique enough, though.
1: Well, (laughs) I think it's funny. Fresno sits 230 miles uh, uh, north of Los Angeles. You would think you would look to L.A. and say, you know, that place is a mess, uh, the way it was d- developed. Um, we need to do something different, but they're not. They're basically the Los Angelization of the San Joaquin Valley began boom and bust, boom and bust, boom and bust. The developers uh, have uh, really are lawless over there. They've been allowed to get away with it everything.
0: That's what struck me, was yeah. that how incredibly, uh, just corrupt. openly corrupt. Yeah. It's like the, the corruption is written into the law, yeah. almost.
1: Yeah, almost. That's a beautiful way of saying it. Um, the uh, I'll give you an example. It sounds a little technical, but it really isn't. When developers build, cities usually extract in return for giving them the rights to build a housing project in a mini mall. They, they extract certain things in return. We want money for roads, we want money for lights, we want money for synchronized lights, parks, cops, all these things. Fresno's never charged developer fees, or if they have, they've been so low they haven't covered the basic infrastructure costs of the development so each development that is built in fresno maybe gives a temporary gain at the front end but over a few years it starts to it's a lo, it's a loser it's an economic loser mm. so growth is basically a ponzi scheme in fresno and <laughs> in, in, in the valley you know <laughs> you like you that. keep yeah you keep bringing in dollars in the front end thinking that you're going to get more and so every development that comes on is basically paying for the losses of the development before it
0: and has to be correspondingly larger, exactly, and less controlled.
1: Right, it's a pyramid, and what happened is during this bust, the valley busted in a way that no region of 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 America did. I mean, the biggest bust, you know, in the aftermath of this um, this financial crisis and, and and the and the bad loans happened in the San Joaquin Valley, mm-hmm. because it was it was such a pyramid scheme, and the towns look bad, they work bad, the lights aren't there, the parks aren't there, because the the developers have been allowed to just take everything and not give anything back.
0: Well, tell us how you bought your foreclosed house.
1: Uh Well, this book came in a strange time for me. I had uh, ended my long career at the LA Times. Uh, My marriage had, uh, my long marriage had uh, come undone. And uh, So I was really adrift, and and and, and some of what was nice about this book is I was kind of out on the road, trying to find my place again. And um, literally, while I was out there, I was looking at houses, and um, I started. I developed. I didn't realize I had such a, um, uh, I guess you could say, a vulture's kind of eye, but I started driving around saying, okay, I'm going to do the dry lawn theory. So every, I drive these neighborhoods that I want to live in and I look for the dry lawn. And and when the lawn just started to dry, it meant that the people had left, but it hadn't been listed yet. And maybe even the bank didn't even know what it had. And so what you did is you swooped in on that kind of house, negotiated to buy it before it ever made the listing. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up with this mid-century house that I kind of, Modernize, so um, so I, I guess I'm a beneficiary of this uh, 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 of the of the great economic collapse out west, um, and um, I'm now planting my vegetable garden on on, on that dirt. So, um, which is something my grandfather passed on to me not only a, a love of writing, but a love of vegetables and growing them in an organic way. So he was an organic grower long mm-hmm. before. Oh, a moonshiner, too. (laughs) Tell us
0: about the moonshiner.
1: (laughs) There's a piece in this book uh, called Confessions of an Armenian Moonshiner. And basically, um, as a kind of a way to reach back, my brother-in-law, myself, and some other Armenians of our generation decided to start um, making a raisin moonshine, a raisin mash, putting it in a copper still, and it's 150 proof, and cooking and brewing this stuff. And we put a little anise in it to give it a little licorice flavor. We we did it for a, a, a year or two with this copper still. Um, the farmer uh, whose land we were doing on it got a little nervous. So my brother-in-law said, we're gonna have to make our own still. And so a year went by and he told me, I've made the still, my brother-in-law is a farmer. And I went and took a look at this thing and it was this behemoth, this massive, <laughs> massive still all made out of stainless steel, old uh, dairy, milk dairy uh, production equipment. The top of it looked like the the massive head of the Tin Man on the Wizard of Oz. And so we started cooking it. We cooked it in his backyard a few years, but it had no poetry doing it in the backyard. So I said, we got to find a vineyard to take this thing in. So finally, we found a farmer who was willing to have us in his vineyard, and that's where we do these cooks. But usually we wait until winter because we want the fog to set in. Mm-hmm. That way, if any of the revenue agents get a sniff <laughs> of what we're doing, we got cover. So, uh, so this one story starts off in a very light way about moonshine and reaching back, but it ends up in a very um, kind of a dark way with uh, some guys not only brewing the moonshine but drinking it, having a barbecue. And then the topic that always comes up when our means get together comes up, and that is the continued denial 94 years later of the armenian genocide by the turkish government and this is weird it's a weird strange wound in the the soul of the armenian spirit here and people say why not get over it It was 94 years ago but it's hard to get over when modern day turkey not only denies the existence of this thing but then goes one step further and says that you know we didn't kill the Armenians. Maybe some died during war. It was the Armenians who, you know, rose up in revolution and killed us. So the killed have become the killers. Okay. And I think this is the, the wounding that, that, mm-hmm. that this piece ends up exploring at the end. One
0: of the parts of California you visited... Was uh, soon to be a commercial capital if uh, Tom Amiano and Jord- Arnold Schwarzenegger have their way. Humboldt County. Exactly. Tell us about that visit.
1: Humboldt County. Um, my wife's family had a uh, has a cabin or a, not really a cabin, but a house in Shelter Cove, which is on the, along the Lost Coast in Humboldt County, and we would go um, every few years. And and I got a sense of that place being just apart from the rest of California. And historically, it was. It was the last part of California to be really civilized. Um, and, um, and it was because of the redwood forest and the, and the rugged, rugged coast. Uh, explorers didn't come in the way they came in. Other way. The gold rush didn't come in the way it did. Um, so I would go up to Shelter Cove, and I also had a sense that, that it was a weird place. Everybody seemed to be in the construction business, <laughs> N- nobody did any business other than than in cash and um people would drive around with some some pretty muscle c- kinds of cars you know all tricked out so there was a lot of funny money and then if you sm- if you smell closely some of the money it had this funny odor something between skunk and, and ground coffee so um my brother-in-law was up there as a construction worker and he would tell me time from time to time about, how a lot of the construction workers were actually building these outdoor grow houses, where these marijuana growers were then under lights using diesel fuel fuel were growing their marijuana. So I decided to go back, and and take a look at the marijuana culture of Humboldt and Mendocino, from from Ukiah up, and it is not just what I thought it was, you know, a thriving business. it it, it is it is the the economy, of a nation unto itself, okay? The top fifth of California is its own nation, built on the marijuana bud. And uh, and these growers took me in, and I hung out with them, and it was a wonderful journey up there to see what they do. And here's what I came in the midst of, this remarkable culture clash. I got lucky. I go to Garberville, and that night they have a meeting. The old hippies who had left the Bay Area, Berkeley and San Francisco, after the summer of love, because they couldn't afford the rents of the Bay Area, ended up taking their, their marijuana culture a, the, into a back-to-the-land back movement, and they ended up taking the marijuana plant to the Redwood Forest and grafting it in a funny way onto that forest. Mm-hmm. The, the rednecks up there, the hillbillies, didn't like what they were doing. Look at all these hippies. They didn't like their politics, and they didn't like the fact they were making easy money. But the children of the hippies and the children of the rednecks went to school together. And at some point, <laughs> as things happen, some of them fell in love. And today, you have this very strange amalgam. It's an animal called the redneck hippie, okay?
0: <clears throat> that sounds like a contradiction yeah, in terms. Yeah, it is.
1: It is. Um, the redneck hippie is growing pot not like the old hippies. They're growing it in this industrial way, as I said, using diesel fuel, controlling the lights, Putting the, the, the plant uh, in, in, in a state where it's total light and then total darkness, really trying to increase the potency of the bud and, 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 and manipulate and get more crops per year. Okay. The diesel is spilling into creeks. The whir and whine of the engines are disrupting life's, you know, the nature up there. And so the old hippies are upset, and they are rising now in protest against the new hippies. <laughs> and, and, and they've got bumper stickers saying what says, you know, outlaw, pollution pot, diesel dope is no good. They're essentially trying to change the ethic so that these folks grow marijuana organically. Organic get, marijuana. Organic <clears throat> marijuana. And so I stepped into the middle of that culture clash, which had everything to do with history and, 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 and you know, and all the things that Didion wrote about in, in slouching towards Bethlehem 40 years later.
0: Well, what's interesting interested me, too, was the scale of some of these guys. I mean, they are not unambitious. There's a guy you talk about who's just got, you know, a whole string of farms. He's kind of like uh,
1: franchising
0: these farms. Yeah,
1: no, no, it's, it's it's wonderful. It's capitalism at its very best. And um, quite open, At the you know, the cops basically threw up their hands and said, we can't do anything. You know, we go up there every year, we do these raids. And we, we we pick up our obligatory record haul every year is a record haul, but we're not making a dent in any of it. Um, it's we from we,
0: three to five, th- three percent to five percent of the total. Or yeah, something, yeah, right. yeah.
1: And and now uh, Mexican nationals are coming into the forest and they're doing their own kind of outlaw marijuana fields. So um, the idea is legalize it, tax it, and you know it's probably who knows. It, I mean, it is the largest cash crop in America. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you could add the. Com- incredible bounty of, of the San Joaquin Valley, which has the number one, two, and three top producing ag counties in the country. You can add all of those crops together, all those harvests, and they would not compare to the value of the marijuana grown from Ukiah all the way up to Shelter Cove.
0: You mentioned the people who fled the summer of love. A lot of them ended up uh, some forty years later at Conspiracy Con, and, and I love Conspiracy Con because that I, I'm a Fortian. Yeah, Charles Fort, all the unexplained conspiracy theories stuff behind you know the wheels within wheels. Tell us about meeting some of those people. Who they were? Who are some of your favorite? I, I love uh, Arlene. Arlene.
1: Arlene's a beauty. <laughs> um, I'd wanted to go to the conspiracy conference for three or four years with Arlene, and finally I did. Um, it's, it's, the Conspiracy Conference is basically a collection of all the top people who are uh, writing and investigating certain conspiracies, 9-11 now among the biggest, um, and then all the people who are their adherents, their followers, Then it's a, it's a religion, it's a church, basically, and they hold their, their big gathering uh, every year in Santa Clara, and so I went, uh, con-con, <laughs> I, I went with Arlene. And um, it, it's, it's a fun story, um, but, you know, Arlene is, 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 is kind of a dropout from the 60s, um, a remarkable woman, but, but um, you know, someone could listen to her piecing together these conspiracies, these elaborate, elaborate, intricate conspiracies that almost defy logic, okay, that don't take into account the notions of entropy and, and the way things fall apart, And and you know she's got it's it's like these meta theories, and they would listen to her and think you know she's off her rocker. Um, She thinks that when when she looks up in the sky and sees those vapors from airplanes, those aren't vapors. Contrails. That's right. Those are chemtrails. 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 Yes. Yes. And 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 the government is seeding the sky, trying to change its magnetic magnetic magnetics, in in the hope that it's easier then to send microwaves off the sky and into our houses to spy on what we're doing. This is halo. Yeah, yeah, that's it.
0: <laughs> the angels don't wear this halo. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I know all about this. stuff. So, so, so,
1: so anyhow, it's, 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 it's a look. My daughter was, was going to Berkeley, mm-hmm. and I said, is there any activism there? What's going on? And these kids are, are the noise of the cell phone and the noise of the internet um, they've got no time, um, barely any room for contemplation, certainly no time for activism. So when it came time to protest the expansion of the Cal Berkeley Stadium and those folks went into the trees, those weren't students from Berkeley. They were activists from around the country in their 20s and 30s looking for the next you know, epicenter.
0: Professional activists.
1: That's what they were. <laughs> um, so I, I went looking for w- w- what... What is it? What's the difference between the '60s and early '70s and today at, at at campuses like Berkeley? Is it simply that there's no more military draft, and so no one care? You know, and they, they're not looking at their lottery numbers, so there's no reason to be an activist anymore. Was it that selfish back then? Was that the reasoning? You know, where's the ardor gone? Where where's the fire gone? Where's that revolution? You know, the, 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 uh, what Didion says is, you know, um, you know, from that 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 Yates poem about um, the the center coming undone. Well, the The center center cannot hold. The center cannot hold. Well, the center was holding perfectly fine in the midst of so much craziness. Why? Um, And so that's why I went to Berkeley, and I found that for the past generation who lived and kind of cut their teeth on Richard Nixon to then become a grandparent in the age of George W. Bush... I mean, this is, you know.
0: I, I'm there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, this yeah. Was,
1: you know, so what they had done is they had taken their suspicion, Arlene. She had taken her suspicion in the 60s. It had turned into paranoia in the 90s and the 2000s. And then that paranoia had become some s- strange phantasmagoria. And, um, and everything had, was inward. And like the kids, like the kids, there was a certain narcissism at the heart of it all. So the kids have become narcissistic, and the grandparents have become narcissistic. And, and I think that's where we're at in America today. It's, it's, it's narcissistic narcissism. <laughs> you know, My cousin and I were talking about this the other night. He said it's like two mirrors reflecting off each other. One mirrors narcissism, and the other mirrors narcissism. And fear, I mean, look at this swine flu. I mean, I, I was—it's laughable. We we all went in the papers. People wearing masks. Schools closing. Um, it's like we've become seven hundred schools. Yeah. yeah, it's like we've become accustomed to fear. And 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 if we don't have fear in our lives, our lives have no meaning. We want it. It's exciting. It is exciting. I mean,
0: a, and it's obviously ridiculous. I mean, more people die of the regular flu every day. And, That's right. And, I mean, you know, if you want to, why aren't we? Who cares about the war on terror? Let's declare a war on automobile accidents. Yes, yeah. far more it, well, deadly. <laughs>
1: ex- r- right on. That's it.
0: Now, but when you talk about conspiracy, uh, tell us about the incredible case of the Lodi. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's good.
0: The Lodi Very agents. Nice. That was a really wonderful uh, uh, piece that you wrote. And, and that must have been difficult to, to report.
1: Very difficult to report. Basically, what happened is in 2006, 2005, I think it was, the the government decided that there was a terrorist cell in the town of Lodi. (laughs) Credence Clearwater (laughs) Revival, you know, stuck in Lodi again, okay? Um, This Pakistani-turned-mole for the FBI said that not only was there a cell there, but Osama bin Laden's number two man, al zakari was living and praying. He was living in Lodi and praying at the local mosque. I mean, this this is how fantastic.
0: <laughs> this is like something Arlene would, yeah, they, they, <laughs> would buy. Yeah, ex- well,
1: art, it's beautiful. No, it was the FBI bought it. Yeah, that's okay. what's scary. Paid this guy $300,000 to go in. Three years later, what he comes out with, or a couple of years later, are hundreds of hours of tapes with the most pathetic pair of father and son, Pakistani. The kid packs Bing cherries in Lodi. The father is the neighborhood ice cream man who drives around the neighborhoods in a Homer Simpson truck. And these two guys are all the federal government has to show for this three-year undercover investigation. And they end up charging the son and father with material support of terrorism. Okay, It's ludicrous. An FB, One of the FBI agents who retired, the star FBI agent of California, a guy who had been named the FBI agent of the year, he believes so strongly this is that this is all just bogus that he ends up volunteering for the defense of father and son and he attempts to testify on their behalf to show how flawed this FBI investigation is. The judge muzzles this man, Jim Weddick the FBI agent that the, the former one, and the son is eventually found guilty of material support of terrorism he's in for life. I use the back and forth between the mole and this son to just, to a devastating effect. And then I I use the transcripts from the FBI interrogation of the son, also to devastating effect. They go on for pages and pages. And by the time you read that, you say, my gosh, how could a jury find this kid guilty? Well, they did, and that case, to me, not unlike some of the other cases um, around the country, really it will will come to represent that age, that age of you know the, of terror and fear. Um, before they close the books on it, you know they'll have to go back and account for this prosecution.
0: Now, you won a, an, a crime writing uh, award for your story of the Zazu chicken. Oh, yeah. And, and now, uh, t- tell us a little bit, just give me some idea of what it's like to be a, a crime reporter. That's a different yeah. beat than, a, than some of the other things you were doing.
1: Yeah, I'm not a crime reporter. I, when I wrote my first book about the murder of my father, I wrote it as a memoir, as an exploration of the genocide, our journey out of Turkey to America, a town, and you know, kind of delving into a town and unmasking it. But there was a crime at the heart of it. Mm-hmm. So I've been fascinated by murder and, 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 and what it does to the survivors. And here was a case. Zongku chicken is a rotisserie chicken empire, I'm going to say. It's a little, <laughs> little overstated. There are six of them in, around the L.A. basin. Incredible rotisserie chicken with this garlic paste that's whipped up into this light, light, light kind of... Um, um, I don't know, it's just something f- so fluffy. And you put your chicken in it, and then they serve hum- hummus, hummus and, and Middle Eastern foods. Well, it was an Armenian family that founded this chain. They came out of Beirut, Lebanon. The war, they fled to Los Angeles. So it's a story of immigrants in L.A. And this dream, they achieved the dream of this, this wonderfully prosperous chicken rotisserie, rotisserie chicken chain. Well, one day a few years ago, the son in his 50s, ends up killing the mother who came up with all the recipes and the garlic paste, kills his sister, and then kills himself. And no one in the Armenian community could figure out why. The papers couldn't figure out why. So I come in a few years later, and using my Armenian heritage, using my knowledge, I I I approach the family and say, I want to tell this story. And so I dig very deeply inside this family and tell this tale of what happened. And it's really Shakespearean. I mean, the, the betrayal, the wounding, the ethnic pride, the, the, the hubris, all that. And I won't give the answer away what happened at the heart of this family. But um, it, it was quite something. And so I ended up, that piece ended up um, appearing in L.A. Magazine. In, um, And it was... I, I didn't know there was such a competition. There's a book every year called The Best American Crime Writing. And so this is now in that anthology of 2008 or 2009. So some of these pieces in the book have appeared in some form in 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 the LA Times or somewhere. Some, uh, most have, you know, some, many haven't, and, and most, all of them have been changed substantially. Um, really the book, instead of being... 11 separate stories is kind of an integrated journey.
0: It's a journey through California. Through
1: California, from 204 to, to the, from the, the, the election of, of, of Bush over Kerry to then the election of, of Obama. And um, it's, um, it's, it has an om, ominous sense to it because look at the road I was following. It was a road trenched by 9-11, by uh, the greatest financial collapse since the Great Depression, I think by the enemy of the digital age, you know, all that stuff is, you know, kind of finds its way into these tales.
0: It's a it's really nice the way the the tales lead from one to another. Could you talk about um when you you some of these were written for the book, some of them were written for other things. Could you talk about assembling the book and going back and giving it I would presume maybe a final rewrite to <clears throat> turn it into the kind of unified narrative it seems to be now. Yeah, that's,
1: I started doing these pieces not really knowing what I was doing. I was, and then I started seeing that, you know, I'm exploring these different landscapes of California and, and, and finding these dramas that allow me into the place. You know, place, this is all about place, this book. Um, and so after three or four of them, I said, you know, I, I can see something building here. And so I just kept trying to find, moving around, trying to find those stories. Um, at the end, I think what it, it was, you know, I had different orders of how the pieces would be many, many different orders. And I think this, this last order, it, it may not be the best. I've had, um, my cousin who's a novelist said, you know, I would have put this one first and this one there, but it's pretty close to being the right way. Cause it gives a sense of moving in mm-hmm. and, and, and the way I do it is, is just, I start from the center, both my center, my family's narrative. Mm-hmm. Okay and I move out to other narratives. Then I start, I also start at the geographical center of California, my home, Fresno, and then I work out to the extremes. And I think that's what gives it its, it's unifying kind of sense, my story, stitching together all these stories, my family story.
0: I've been speaking with Mark Arax. His new book is West of West. Thank you for joining me, Mark.
1: Thank you very much. It's a wonderful interview. <music>